Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have author Matt Stoller. Matt Stoller also works at the American Economic Liberties Project. He graduated from Harvard with a BA in history and also has a past jobs as a producer at MSNBC, a senior policy advisor to Alan Grayson and to the Senate Budget Committee. He's also the author of a new book called Goliath, which is out now. Can you describe kind of what that book goes about a little bit, Matt? Sure. So the book is, the full title of the book is Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And the book is about the tension in America between, in, within how we structure our markets and what that means. And so when we've had, in periods in our, in our history, we've had very concentrated monopolistic markets, and in periods in our history, we've had much more decentralized markets. And that I look at monopoly as a political system rather than as kind of a, a type of business. And I think one, one of the things that you see in, in pharmacies right now is there's incredible amounts of concentration and independent pharmacists and then pharmacists that work for chain pharmacies are in kind of like increasingly autocratic circumstances because they, they are told what the prices are if they are even given prices. And that is a, that's a kind of, of political system that we don't think of as a political system, but it is. But then that's consistent with what we've seen across the rest of the economy, which is systemic concentration and monopolization in everything from, you know, it's not just drugstores and pharmacists and PBMs. It's also search engines and social networks and peanut butter and syringes and, <laughs> and, and missiles and munitions and aerospace. We have a concentrated monopolistic uh, economy, and it's, it's causing all sorts of problems, which I'm sure you guys see. But then we've had this problem before in the 20s and 30s. We fought back. We arranged a whole series of laws around pricing around how corporate concentrations would work, around markets, and we essentially fixed it. And now we're at another moment of kind of political crisis, and the question is kind of what we will do now. So the book starts in 1910, goes basically up until 2016 or so. Okay, yeah, and part of the reason I wanted you on this podcast today was, one, you wrote this really awesome kind of like analysis and monopolistic look at what Ellen Gabler wrote for the New York Times, which was the, the landmark piece kind of about CVS and the chaos at chain pharmacies, as well as some of the medication errors and things like that that we're seeing from some of the bigger chains that are kind of getting swept under the rug. I thought you were a good voice to have on this because, one, you have the book out, Goliath, which is directly on kind of what's going on in pharmacy these days, and you're not a pharmacist. A lot of times on this podcast, I bring on pharmacists, and we kind of sit here and talk about the politics of a pharmacy and what have you, but you, not being a pharmacist, took it upon yourself to still write about what's going on in our professional world, and it struck a chord because you basically supported everything Ellen Gabler says, which was awesome for me to read and me to hear that a not-pharmacist was, was looking at it that way. Now, you pointed out a few different things. Can you kind of elaborate on what you wrote and why you felt inspired to write on this? Yeah, so I am, a, I am totally useless. I have no <laughs> skills whatsoever. I, I tell stories. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, pharmacists actually have useful skills that can help people. I study monopoly power. It's funny, I had a similar situation with cheerleading. I wrote a piece. So I have a newsletter called Big, which is an email newsletter I send out twice a week or so. I wrote up cheerleading the same way because I was like, oh, cheerleading, you know, an analysis of the, the company that controls cheerleading. And all these people were like, oh, my gosh, you don't know anything about cheerleading, but you sort of got the industry structure right. And it's true. I don't know anything about cheerleading. I don't know anything about kind of what it's like to prescribe medication or do patient care. But the basic dynamics of every kind of monopolist is the same, which is usually what they try to do is establish some sort of gatekeeping power over key resource. 
whether it's over customers or whether it's over key inputs. In the case of pharmacists, it's the inputs are, are medicine, so they do it through PBMs. They have a, a conflict of interest built into their business model. And that's what you see with like something like CVS, which is a, a big chain of pharmacy, but then they also own a PBM and they can use that PBM to manipulate their competitors through through pricing. And then now they've brought in, you know, an insurance company Aetna, and they, they have more levers that they can use to manipulate. So that's the, that's the gist of, of what I saw is that like, oh, okay, this is the same thing as what Google does, except Google does it in the advertising space. It's the same thing as what, you know, Varsity Brands does, except Varsity Brands does it in the cheerleading space. And you can go like down the economy and you'll find, you know, the, Amazon does it in the book space. Like, and, and what you have at the end of the kind of the end, the people that feel the pain are the people in your position, right? The people that actually have to do the work yeah. and the ones getting manipulated. So that's the, the story I told about CVS. You know, Elaine Gabler wrote this amazing piece uh, about CVS and then she just wrote one about Walgreens. Essentially, it's the same piece. It's the speeding up the line, kind of getting interfering with patient care. And what I did is I, I said, you know, this is a great piece. There's a lot of great reporting, but let's actually look at how CVS came to be, why there are all of these errors, why pharmacists that work for CVS don't have power. And so I went through the, the mergers that CVS did in basically from the 1990 onward, and there was a bunch of them. And then I went through kind of their corporate strategy in which they're really trying to mimic Amazon. So I read some of their, you know, their, their investor documents and basically was trying to tell the story that I think you guys feel, which is, you know, that there really is this immense concentration of power. And then I send, I send it out and try to notify kind of policymakers about it, oftentimes trying to embarrass them <laughs> because they do actually know about what, you know, what's going on, but just to spell it out in terms that they can't deny. Yeah. And I think that's really big that you do that, not just as like a, a good hearted thing, but because you put it in layman's terms, you put it in terms they understand, which is a huge problem for pharmacy because this PBM black box is something most people think that we just bill your insurance. Well, no, we bill a little part of your insurance that essentially turns around that then bill your insurance. And there's, you know, billions of dollars that transfers in between in that process. That's basically a black box. That is what CVS has done a very good job of controlling as well as the other PBMs have too on the market. And you mentioned that yeah, obviously they've made a lot of acquisitions since 1990. Their biggest one, obviously, was in 97 when they took over Revco, which was actually based in Ohio here, right by Cleveland, where I live. So I remember feeling that direct impact because there was Revcos everywhere. Then all of a sudden, it just switched to CVS. And my mom, who actually worked for them, Revco, but then to turn to CVS, about equal times with each, a little bit more with Revco, saw huge changes in the way that they treated their labor, their workforce and some of the metrics driven, the things that they were doing, it seemed to be less about care and more about the almighty dollar, which is obviously why they go into business. But when it comes to healthcare, that can be a very dangerous and slippery slope to go down. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's about it's about control, right? So that's what they're trying to do. And they're trying to impose control from their corporate office in Rhode Island. And it's like people that are, you know, independent pharmacists live in a community that they serve, you know, independent pharmacists, they're all types. Uh, just like everybody, they're all types. But fundamentally, if you live in a community, you're going to care more about that community, regardless of who you are. And so, you know, just like I'm sure that people in Rhode Island, like the CVS managers, the leaders in Rhode Island, I'm sure that when they go to a local CVS, they care more about how that local CVS operates than the ones, you know, in Arizona or whatever. So, yeah, absolutely. There's a there's an intensity of control. But to understand, like, what happened, you have to understand, and I think this is really what is so important about the, the kind of new anti-monopoly movement and then the people like pharmacists speaking up is that this is all a function of law. 
right? So yeah. we didn't used to allow the level of consolidation that we allow now. And it's incredible. You know, there are still laws in the books which presumably would, would have prevent this. But what is incredible about the PBM problem is that when you actually try to explain it to people who don't haven't spent <laughs> any time thinking about PBMs or drugstores, it literally sounds unbelievable. Yeah, no, like it totally it, does. It, it's crazy because it's like, no, no, they can pay you, you know, there's no price. And then like six months later, they can bill you a random amount. And they're like, that can't be, they just like don't believe you. They think you're lying because it's so fantastical. Mm-hmm. But that is actually how it works. And what it, what's funny is that in throughout like nearly like a lot of different businesses and industry sectors have consolidated in the same way that drugstores have because fundamentally our antitrust laws and our regulatory policies and our philosophical choices, which I go into in Goliath, they have reshaped virtually every industry in, in America. And so the same kind of un- fantastically unbelievable things that are going on in drugstores are going on everywhere. And yet people don't know that and they feel ashamed and afraid and isolated and alienated and controlled and manipulated. And part of what I think we need to do as a society is get together and say, actually, this isn't right. And we're all feeling afraid, whether it's the engineer at Boeing being like, hey, that's not safe. Or whether it's the drugstore owner who's like getting screwed on their PBM and then they get a letter from CVS being like, hey, we'd like to buy you out. It's, it's all part of the same society that's now increasingly driven by fear because of our, of our laws around business. Yeah, and you hit it out exactly on the point with some of those industries, with the Boeing issues we've seen with the, the regulators who just gave them a pass on whatever it was, and they literally had planes fall out of the sky, likely because of that, which was obviously way more catastrophic and way more visible than what's going on with pharmacy. But at the same no, time... No, that's not true, though. I mean, I'm, I don't think that's right. I think it's my, maybe it's a lot more visible, but when you have pharmacists that make mistakes... People die. True. I mean, it's not, it's yeah. not, it, the costs are significant. Maybe it's the Midwestern pharmacist in me, but I like to try and be a little humble when it comes to that stuff. It is definitely more visible to see airplanes, but yes, you can definitely kill someone. You make a mistake in pharmacy, which is one of the quotes that was in this article that Ellen Gabler wrote was, I'm a danger to the public working at CVS. And there was some other various quotes. And even the American Psychiatric Association weighed in saying they were concerned due to the fact that many prescriptions are being changed to three-month supplies that shouldn't be given that mental health patients are at a higher risk for, obviously, suicide, things like that, and taking all the medication at once, which could be fatal in many other cases. Some of the state boards of pharmacy even said they have a hard time regulating how the, the companies run and dictate their business. Is that kind of another thing you see a lot of and you kind of wrote about in Goliath? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is, I think we've had this philosophical debate about how to organize really industrial power ever since industrialization really hit the U.S., which was basically the 1870s, right? That's when kind of standard oil emerged and you know, started to see the steel industry. And sort of the open question is, okay, you have this immense power, telegraphs and railroads and steel and yep. oil, like something we've never seen before. You can move faster than a horse. You couldn't move faster than a horse from the Roman Empire until the 1830s. Now all of a sudden you can, right? Yep. Now you can communicate through the telegraph instantly, which is, you know, what do you do with this power? And one argument was, and this is, I started in 1910, but it's like the election of 1912. There's basically three ideas. And this is a global debate, but I focused on America. And the first idea is, well, what you need, and this is, this is Teddy Roosevelt, who people think of as a trust buster, but he actually wasn't. He was a concentration guy. His attitude was, well, look, Bigness, monopolies are natural, right? Probably what you hear when, when people are like, hey, CVS is driving independent pharmacists out of business. You probably hear, oh, well, you know, that's just the way of the world. That's just progress, which is, of course, nonsense. But that, that's what a lot of people believe. Teddy Roosevelt believed that. 
And his view was these monopolists, we need to regulate them. So that would be regulated monopoly, which is to say you need a public master over over these monopolies, almost a kind of quasi-socialist uh, approach. Right. Then you had William Howard Taft, and his approach was that you just kind of let these guys do what they do. You do a little antitrust here or there, but essentially private masters. So the monopolies, let them do what they do. They're good at it. And then the third approach was Woodrow Wilson, and he was advised by Louis Brandeis. And Louis Brandeis actually did a lot with pharmacists and promoted what was called fair trade. And his view, uh, both Wilson and, and Brandeis, was that you shouldn't have monopolies. You shouldn't have a public or private masters. You should have no masters. You should break up monopolies and then regulate the business practices to make sure that business is done fairly. And that was called regulated competition. Now, a couple of years later, once the World War One happened, we started to call concentrating power in the hands of the state. We called it communism, concentrating power in the hands of private corporatists who would then take over the government. We call that fascism. But it got a bad name because it, these guys went along with a bunch of autocratic, violent yeah. stuff. That, that wasn't true in 1912. But what we did in the U.S., we basically said, we're going to do liberal democracy. So we're going to have some concentration, but mostly we're going to have markets and we're going to regulate the business practices of those markets. So today, we're kind of having that debate again because we have these immense concentrations of power. And what you're talking about with the state boards is they're trying to say, well, how do we regulate CBS. How do we regulate a Walgreens? These companies are so powerful that they have visibility into the business, the industry, and, and we don't. Correct. And that gets to a quote which Woodrow Wilson said, which was, when the government tries to reg regulate the monopolies, pretty soon we'll find that the monopolies regulate the state. And that's, I think, what happens like when you allow these, these concentrations of power. Yeah, and Woodrow Wilson, um, you know, Brandeis wrote a lot of his stuff. So I don't know who wrote that one, but yeah, they, they used to, our politicians used to be so much better at speaking. Oh yeah. So much sure. more articulate. And I yeah. thought it was pretty interesting because you even in the, in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, but you mentioned that independent, independent pharmacies used to have a lot more clout on this field because of the role they played. How did you go about finding that out when it seems like for, at least now for my generation, which is the millennials, Gen X, and even really it doesn't until you get to the boomers that we even hardly remember independent pharmacies although there's still 20,000 of them in the United States. So I got my start, like I started this project um, writing Goliath and learning about monopolies because of the financial crisis. So I was a staffer for a member who was representing Orlando. And I was just kind of like a lot of people at the time, you know, I had been trained to think, oh, the banking system, that's the technical thing. I, I thought that banks were neutral technocratic institutions and so were corporations. And so I was like, okay, well, what's the fix here? What I noticed in 2009 and 10 is that nobody knew what was going on as the system was blowing up. Yep. And over time, I realized, oh, this is actually not a technical problem with banks. This is a financial, this is a, a political crisis. And I ran into this woman named Jane Darista, who is a, she's an old economist in her 70s. She seemed to know what was happening. She's like, oh, that market's going to blow up. Oh, oh, that derivatives market, that thing, that other market's going to blow up. And it always would, would happen now. The bankers didn't know this, the lobbyists, the Treasury, the Fed people. Nobody knew and it, what was happening, but Jane did. And I was like, how do you know this? And she's like, oh, well, I used to work for this guy named Wright Patman who worked, uh, who ran the banking committee in the 60s and 70s in Congress. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Hmm. And they didn't think much of it. Then a few years later, Jane, I read a book on monopolies and this, this something called the anti-chain store movement came up because Walmart is very powerful, as you know. Yeah. And there was a law that used to constrain Walmart, but then it was removed. It basically stopped enforcing it in the 1970s. And this law was called the Robinson-Patman Act. And I was like, wait, Wright-Patman? Hmm. 
Patman. That, that's the banking guy. But he also has this law called Robinson Patman, which is about chain stores. And then I started, I went back to Jane, who had tried to get me interested in Patman. And I was like, wait, tell me more about this. And she told me about this incredible story of this guy who impeached Andrew Mellon, who's the powerful Secretary of the Treasury in 1932. He also was the first Democrat to investigate Nixon in 1972. And he passed Robinson Patman in 1936. Wow. And he fought against uh, high interest rates, monopolies, and special privileges of all sorts. And he was from rural Texarkana. I, I know that area right? well. So this guy was, yeah, so just like a straight-up populist Democrat. It's very kind of culturally similar to the to a lot of the way the Republicans operate in some ways, uh, but a populist, right, a left populist. So I started doing a lot of research, and I came upon the anti-chain store movement. And in Goliath, I go into what this movement was. It was a it was a movement that really started in like 1911 after a Supreme Court decision called the Dr. Miles decision, which was about actually a, a pharmaceutical company called the Dr. Miles company that unleashed chain stores. And Brandeis started organizing against it. And, and eventually Patman uh, chain stores were pretty popular and exploded in the 20s. But then there started to be like independent pharmacists and independent tradespeople and farmers were like pretty unhappy with with chain stores because like you know chain stores today like walmart or amazon or cvs what they do is they crush producers they crush suppliers yeah and in the depression like politics changed pretty radically because we had a breakdown of our production system kind of similar to what we're seeing with the coronavirus where we're going to stop you know we're going to stop getting a lot of medicine that we need that breakdown of production did happen in the early 30s and the result was a, a populist uprising. And one of the consequences was this huge organizing by the anti-chain store movement. And they got, they passed Robinson Patman, they passed Miller Tidings, which was a, another law that prevented the use of, of price discrimination and, and the, the use of, of sort of underpricing to, to kill competition. And uh, they, they almost killed chain stores totally with a, hmm. with, a, with a chain store tax. And it was like this amazing, I never knew anything about this. And it was, it was basically, it was about distributing, it, it went back to Thomas Jefferson and having like small plots of land uh, and Frederick Douglass too, you know, they, you know, moved when that forward in the industrial era, land wasn't necessarily the sole basis of wealth, although it was still an important basis of wealth. Increasingly, it was things like uh, small stores and pharmacies and small banks and credit unions and, and like, uh, you know, that, that were, that were important anchors of the community. And so Patman protected that. And then later on, and so that's chapter six of Goliath. And then in um, chapter 15 or 14, I go into why in the 1970s, the kind of like Watergate baby generation, the Bill Clinton's generation got into power in 74. And they ended up removing the laws that Patman put in there. They overthrew Patman. They got rid of him as the chair of the banking committee. And it was this ideological revolution in the Democratic Party, which was followed by an ideological revolution in the Republican Party in 1978. That was Newt Gingrich's um, election year. And when they did that, the, the Democrats unleashed the power of chain stores. And they did this because they thought this would be good for consumers. So they changed their vision of what we what we are from citizen, which has had been the, the traditional Jeffersonian, Brandeisian populist tradition to consumers, which was this uh, a much more sort of quasi-Marxist view of how the world works. Um, it's a very weird history because it's not like a right-left history. There's like prop, there's bad guys on the left and bad guys on the right, good guys on the right, good guys on the left. That's people I think are ideologically confused today because this was a very confusing set of sophisticated movements. Anyway, so that's the that's the story. You roll that that forward forty years, uh, the Democratic and Republican parties that don't understand concentrations of power. And you have monsters like CVS that exist and are dominating our pharmaceutical industry or pharmaceutical distribution and sale, getting between pharmacists and, and their communities and their, 
and the people that they offer care to and doing these speed up things on the line, not allowing bathroom breaks. And fundamentally, you know, it's not CVS that's done this, but it's other uh, monopolists essentially offshoring, concentrating and offshoring so much productive capacity that now faced with a pandemic, we can't provide ourselves with medicine Correct. Uh, anymore. And that's, that's super scary. Yeah. And I think you, so you had a lot there, which was all great information, a lot to unpack. But the main thing I got was obviously research some of the patent laws, which sound like they don't all exist today, but it's a good thing to kind of as a basis going forward for maybe even the Supreme Court to look at since they're coming up on the uh, PCMA, PCMA versus Rutledge for Arkansas coming up here in, I think it's two months now. So that could be something. Tell me about that. I don't know anything about that. Oh, that's another big one. Rutledge is the AG for Arkansas is suing PCMA, the Pharmaceutical Care Managers of America, and it's going to be a landmark case that will make or break pharmacy. So if you don't know a lot about that, read up on it. I'm definitely going to have a few podcasts mm-hmm. on it because it's it's going to make or break pharmacy and healthcare in this country one way or the other. So it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that, yeah, you mentioned obviously a lot of independent pharmacies since they had some clout in town providing care and rapport with people. What do you see as a solution to a lot of these problems? Like the pharmacists who are being forced to come in and stay late, work off the clock, not get bathroom breaks, not really take care of people, all of those things. And, and people might not care because we're compensated well, but at the same time, you know, we're seeing those pay rates fall as we're seeing more and more grads being pumped up by these schools that are propped up by some of these monopolies like you mentioned. What do you see being a solution here to some of these problems? Well, I think we need to get political. What we have to do is get states to change their laws and get the federal enforcers to act and get Congress to act. It's happening, right? As people are paying attention to concentrations of power, they're also getting embarrassed, which is good (laughs) because they should be embarrassed. And what you find with the FTC is that if they feel like people are looking at them and pointing their finger at them and saying, hey, Congress, the FTC isn't doing their job, the FTC gets very upset. And yeah. what's happened in the last five years is the FTC, they're run by a commission. So there's five commissioners. And it used to be that they would always, you know, they were all very collegial and it would always be five to O decisions. And they were all very nice. And they all were like, oh, look at how bipartisan we are all together making terrible decisions. <laughs> and now what you're seeing is they're still making those terrible decisions, but set, there are a lot of dissents now. So it's not five to zero, it's three to two, or it's four to one, or it's four, it's three to one with a recusal, or it's three to two. And so there's a lot of turmoil inside the commission because they're, they're like, what do we do? There's not a consensus. We're not sure. And in Congress is starting to yell at them more. And they're kind of like, we don't know what to do. And they're starting, I talked to a, to an enforcer who was like, I didn't used to tell people I did antitrust because no one knew what that was. I told them I did consumer protection and privacy. But now I'm getting emails from friends and from people I know and from other just random people saying, hey, are you going to look into this monopoly or Google or this other monopoly or whatever? And she's like, and we want to take on the tough cases. We want to take on the public cases. And this has changed the way that we evaluate what we're going to do. So one of the things I think that's much that's hardest to sort of internalize is that we do live in a democracy and what we think matters. And I think we as as citizens, we are so used to being powerless and we are so used to government not caring what we think that we just give up before we start. But I do think that the solution, we are making a difference like this anger is making a difference. And so the idea is to like band together and go to our government and demand that they act. And if they don't, we have to keep demanding. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really shown out, if nothing else, in the Bernie Sanders campaign, where we're seeing him talk about, and even Elizabeth Warren, breaking up some of these big monopolies, regulating the lobbying, regulating 
insert whatever you can think of that you basically just mentioned. And I think that we're seeing a huge groundswell of people behind some of those candidates, which obviously could be for better or worse, depending on whatever your political views are. But we're definitely seeing that with exactly what you're saying. Yeah, pharmacists, I mean, I imagine there's an age split among pharmacists, right? So probably the older pharmacists are more right-leaning and the younger ones are more left-leaning. Yeah, probably, but yeah. It's probably a more right-leaning group in general. But, you know, the thing is, is that, like, there are a lot of Republicans that care about this, too. So what I think is exciting about this moment, it's a very scary moment, but it's also exciting, is that you can actually see real bipartisan action on concentrations of power. I think we will see that. We are starting to see it. We're going to have to fix our institutions. I think like the, the ability of, of independent pharmacists to encourage political leaders to take this seriously, it, it, it exists, that ability. And I just I want pharmacists as business people and as people that are community leaders to push for our political leaders to get more aggressive about organizing markets. Yeah, and I think the crazy thing is we're even seeing the chain pharmacists step up, like the ones who spoke out in this article by Ellen Gabler in the New York Times and gave them some of these awesome quotes that kind of show what they're dealing with here. Uh, again, your book out is called Goliath, The 100-Year War Between Monopolies, Power, and Democracy. As soon as I finished Bottle Lies by Catherine Eban, which is about our drug manufacturing, which is exactly what we talked about the coronavirus to some extent, that's going to be my next hot read. So definitely people pick that up. They can find it, I believe, on Amazon and basically wherever you find books, you can get it, order it from. The other thing I want to get your opinion on before I end up this wrap up this podcast here, if you could change one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? Oh, well, I was going to say I'd break up CVS. Yeah, I hate getting texts from CVS whenever I get a prescription. They keep texting me to pick up more prescriptions, <laughs> and I find that very annoying. Yeah, so I think that's what I would do. I would split up CVS into an insurance company. Um, you know, basically, I'd make PBMs independent. I think that would be a huge, a huge thing that would change the landscape. And I don't know if the Supreme Court's going to weigh in on that part of it at all when it comes to the case with PCMA. But it's there's a chance they might say something that could lead to that further down the road. So some of the leaders in Congress and the Senate that could really make a big deal of this. Hey, one other thing I want to mention before Mac is off the podcast day. Thanks for coming on. What are some places that people can find you on, like Twitter and some of your other? You said Big was a a email chain you put out. Okay, so I am available a number of different places. My book is probably the most coherent, put-together history that I spent years on it. It's a really fun set of stories and really easy to read. I do Big, which you can find on mattsoller.com, M-A-T-T-S-T-O-L-L-E-R.com, where I write. I usually do like analysis of a specific industry segment, and uh, I try to make it fun and interesting. I am also on Twitter. If you want <laughs> a version of me that is maybe more assertive, I think would be the way to put it. That would be M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-T-O-L-L-E-R. That is that is not <laughs> not the part of myself that I'm proudest of. But if you want that, it's, it's available on Twitter. <laughs> I, I actually like putting it out there because you have a lot of political commentary that is very assertive, but at the same time, you also played a very good boat, very good way of kind of rocking back and forth both ways with it. And you had a little segment about if, what if Pete Buttigieg was a intern for Amy Klobuchar that I found absolutely hilarious. No matter what your political leanings are, I thought that was just great. <laughs> I started collecting all of those stories, by the way, of what like Amy would do to Pete. Those are all true. Those are all basically stories that friends on um, in liberal politics told me about, like how their boss treated them or or <laughs> Wall Street. Basically, those two. <laughs> I'm just like a sadistic boss torturing their intern. That, that those are all true stories. 
It's just that they're not Amy and Pete. Yeah. Though, <laughs> though, that was a great follow. I really enjoyed it. Uh, hey, thanks for coming on the <laughs> podcast today. I really think that your insight into some of this monopolies and monopolistic tactics and Goliath and even the article you wrote about CVS could really be eye-opening for pharmacists to read. So I definitely encourage everyone to go read that. Thanks for coming on today. Again, I can't say how much I appreciate your insight and some of these laws that you clearly know better than me or any of my friends would probably know. And thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy hey, thanks, and politics. Man.